Our first speaker is Maggie Kenyon from uh, the organisation with possibly the worst acronym in the sector. I think we do a lot of bad acronyms. This is appalling. SHUFPA, which is a Sexual Health and Family Planning Australia organisation. I've just seen Maggie speaking at a meeting with the new Parliamentary Secretary for Pacific Island Affairs, explaining, well, what do you do, Duncan, when a woman turns up at your doorstep with six children under seven, and we're talking about gender equity, and we're talking about um, introducing women into the workforce, and we're talking about equal rights for women. You know, how do you manage that? And it was really the most apposite and powerful um, thing that was said in the entire two and a half hours. So she's terrific. Maggie is the manager of the international program at Sexual Health and Family Planning Australia. Only for another minute, though, she's going on to new adventures. She's a midwife, she's an educator, she's a reproductive health consultant and a fearsome advocate. She's worked and lived in East Africa for five years. She's been in the Solomon Islands for ten years. She's worked at all levels, from training traditional birth attendants in refugee camps to at Ministry of Health levels, and has a particular interest and a passion about the Pacific. Maggie. I can tell people I've been interviewed by the 7.30 report now. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take you on a story because everybody, there's a moment in your life where you change and you go, ah, you know, the MDGs or what things make sense to you. So my story is when I discovered the link between population and environment, and I haven't shut up since that time, but if I take you back to that time, you might understand why I, I became so passionate about it. My, my talk is also sprinkled with a lot of quotes, which I'm not going to bore you by reading, but if you can just read them, you know, while I'm talking... <laughs> That does two tricks at one time. My husband and I, we were working in Solomon Islands. We went to work on a very small island. I don't know if you know Solomon's very well. I have a pointer. Um, down here is the capital, Honiara. We actually went up here and we were working up there for two years in a, an organisation um, British funded. There's Bougainville, so we were very close to Bougainville. That's the island, and I'll keep coming back to this. This is Choisel, just so you get a, a bit of a look about it. It was named after the Duke de Choisel, who was a French explorer. This is how we would travel. We travelled in this, this canoe. It would take us three days to go around the island. So I might say it's 100 kilometres long, but you have to think in terms of canoe trips. Now, this is my job, and you know you can see oh, why I'd like to go back to the Pacific. It's a very nice job travelling in one of these. We would travel around the clinics, and we would go to each of the clinics, and we would talk to the staff and see what they were doing and motivate them a bit. And we had this standard joke that when we went to a clinic... We didn't even have to ask the name of the religion. We'd just walk in the door and we'd go, ah, this is a Uniting Church village, or ah, this is a Seventh-day Adventist village. You know? And it was really easy to tell the difference because when I went to a Seventh-day Adventist clinic, the nurse would be sitting there doing crochet, and that's all she would do. And I'd say, well, where's the patients? And she'd say, well, I think I had one yesterday, and he had a scratched knee, and I fixed it. Um, where's all the pregnant women? Well, no, everybody's on family planning. Nobody's pregnant. You know, I think I've got one woman who's pregnant in the village. Well, what about child malnutrition? There's none. You know, these villages were absolutely fantastic and the nurses had nothing to do. And then we'd go up to the other end of the island and there's a religion up there that doesn't believe in family planning or any artificial sort of family planning. And when I'd get there, the clinic would be packed. You know, there would be 50 people outside. When I'd go through the antenatal cards, I found like 40% at risk women who were pregnant. 
when we did the child malnutrition studies, we'd find 30 to 40% malnutrition in those children. When you looked at the children, they had black teeth. You know, when you went outside, there was rubbish all over the ground. There was pigs and there was chickens and there was tins and there was plastics. And there was such a difference between the clinics down the south and the clinics up the north. What happens in a lot of countries in, in the Pacific is that you'll find one religious group will go to one area. So in the north, there was one religion that mainly predominated up there. 95% of the villages were that religion. And in the central part, there was another religion there. And then down in the south, there was another religion. Okay, so this island can actually be divided in three. So if you look there, from there north, that was all Catholics. Okay, in the central part, they were all uniting church. And down here, they were all Seventh-day Adventists. So it just happened that way, but it was very interesting for us when we looked at things. We unfortunately lived on a Catholic mission, and opposite the Catholic mission was a logging company. For those of you who know my husband, that's my husband there. And this was the size of the trees that they were taking out at the time. I, I don't think you'll find those trees now, not that size. Um, but we lived opposite that logging company for a couple of years. Okay, the church to me was really important. The differences I could see between that island when you divide it into thirds was health, village cleanliness, education, fertility. In the south, there were SDAs. They didn't eat pigs, so there was no pigs at all. And the chickens were kept outside the village. SDAs really believe in natural food, so they had lots of garden food. They had lots of fresh fish. Um, all their houses were beautiful houses, iron roofs, water tanks outside. Generally, two kids per family. And when you asked, both of those kids had tertiary education. You know, their, their kids were going off to Honiara and becoming teachers or nurses or bachelor's degrees. Very well educated. The contraceptive prevalence rate in the SDA villages was often 70%. They were either having their second child or they were on tubal ligation and vasectomies. In the central part, that was Uniting Church, there was chickens around but the pigs were outside. There's usually four children. Um, most of those kids went on and got good secondary education, mixed sort of housing. And then when I went up to the north, like I've described it, you know, an average of seven children, 2% contraceptive prevalence rate, really poor housing, very densely packed villages. This is where the environment part comes in. When you looked at logging on Choisel, you would find in the south there was no logging, absolutely no logging whatsoever. There was pristine villages down there. When we went to central, there was eco-forestry, so they would target different trees and they would take those trees out. And all the logging was up in the north. 100% of the logging companies worked in the northern areas. So we had large-scale logging. They've logged out the north and they're moving on. These are some of the effects of logging that we used to see. The men would go off and work for the logging company. When the men went out there, they didn't do any fishing anymore because it was the men who would go outside to do the, the deep fishing. The women didn't do that. They stayed close in. So the men were no longer getting the large fish. People lived on tin fish. The men stopped going out to the food gardens because when they went to work for the logging company, they didn't have time to do the food gardens. The women didn't want to go to the food gardens so much or by themselves, and so people stopped their food gardens. They started to live on rice and bongos and biscuits, and bongos are like a, a cracker, popcorn. As a result of this, oh, and there was displaced pigs too. So where the forestry was, the wild pigs would come down and they would start eating the food gardens. So it made it even worse. There was malnutrition... There was um, terrible malnutrition in the kids because the kids weren't getting fresh food. They were living on rice for breakfast, biscuits for lunch, rice for dinner. 
Another problem with the logging company is it brought in lots of money. And with the money, people have hot money and cold money, and hot money is what you've sweated for. Cold money just comes in your hand. And this was cold money coming in for logging. They would use it straight away on beer, on biscuits, on bongos, lots of beer. There was lots of violence. You never saw violence in the SDA areas because they don't drink alcohol. Okay? But you saw lots of violence in the north. You saw lots of gender violence. We saw rape. We saw women getting beaten up all the time. There was migrants in the north because it was a logging area. They brought migrants in to work there. Now, when you get migrants, they're not allowed to own land. Their wives had nothing to do, so they gambled all day. We'd go across to do house visits, and people would be gambling at 9 o'clock in the morning, sitting there with cards. There was nothing for the women to do. There was environmental destruction too. Over the, the rivers became polluted, the reef became polluted. You couldn't go out and collect shellfish anymore. The shellfish died. People couldn't fix their houses up because there was no more timber or canes to fix their houses up. Um, there was no forest animals. They used to eat a sort of a possum. It wasn't there. They used to get bush medicines. They lost that as well. So you can see this sort of cycle of getting worse and worse. What we saw was a big thing. Um, it's the poverty link, I call it. You've got population growth and you've got environment destruction. Now, not necessarily does it cause a direct link, but if you go through poverty, then you see a very clear link coming up. This is just a, a graph that I've been given, um, the association between fertility and poverty, and it's quite strong. The higher fertility, the higher the rates of poverty. And this is what we were seeing in Choisel province, where there was high fertility, there was high poverty. And when you've got high poverty and no money, what do you sell? If you're a woman, you sell your body. You know, do you ever ask prostitute why you're doing it? It's because of the money, yeah? She has the only thing she can sell, she sells her body. For the village people, the only thing they could sell is their resources. The, the total fertility rate going up causes poverty. Poverty causes people to sell the only thing that they've got there, their fish or their trees. So that's the association between fertility and poverty. And this is the typical family in the north side. I would regularly see grandparents, who are grandmothers who are pregnant with their 13th child and their own daughter there with her own two kids. You'd see grannies in church walking down, pregnant and holding on to one baby and holding on to their grandchild in the other arm. It was very common to see this. Geoffrey Sachs, in his book, The End of Poverty, said it leads to deeper poverty, high population. High population growth leads to deeper poverty and deeper poverty contributes to high fertility rates. It's a downward spiral. The only way to get out of poverty is to do something about fertility. I'll talk about this a little bit later, but just to show you another graph on fertility and education. There is a belief that if women are educated, then they will start using family planning. It's not quite true, because the problem is you can't get educated unless there is family planning. There's a chicken and an egg approach there. And we would see that all the time. The young girls would get pulled out of primary school every two years because there's a new baby to look after. And they were forever getting pulled out. And we had girls who were 14 and 15 years old and they were in grade four. And that was the end of their schooling then because every two years they got pulled out, looked after the new baby. If you get into high school and you're lucky and you get pregnant, then you get kicked out of you know, high school. So unless you've got family planning there, you're not going to get education in the first place. I do talk to villagers often about, you know, well, what if you're educated? Do you think that will make a difference on the logging that's happening? And they used to go, oh, no, Maggie, no, no, no. It's the educated people who are signing the contracts. 
You know, it's the educated people who are getting us into trouble. They're the ones signing off with the logging company. And then we bring in this conversation, yes, but what if... Don't you have to be educated to challenge the educated people? You know, a poor village person can't say, hey, chief, you're wrong here. But somebody who is educated can challenge the chief and say, you are wrong, let's not sign that contract. So you do need to have quite a strong educated um, community in order to stop people signing contracts. This is from PNG, but it's what they do. The, the logging companies come in and offer you all this money and promise you all sorts of things, and it never happens. So we're back to Choisel. I like this map, <laughs> and it's courtesy of Google. What used to make us really sad in Choisel is that they were one ethnic group. They weren't different ethnic groups. You know, they weren't Highlanders and Lowlanders or anything like that. In Choisel, they were really one ethnic people, but it was the religion that made such a difference in their lifestyles and in their health and in their education and everything that was happening to them. You go down the south, in the south you've got rich communities, they've got pristine forests. I mean, I even tried to find Catholic nurses. I wanted to post Catholic nurses to the top so that they could work in the Catholic clinics. And people said, Maggie, there's no Catholic nurses. The girls don't get into secondary. So here, here you've got in one people, one education makes such a difference. It makes you a second class and third class citizen in your own area. I didn't leave under very good conditions from that Catholic mission, I tell you. I got quite cross at what was happening. You know, and if you could just get rid of this policy on artificial family planning, you could have everybody would have been much more equal there. Okay, this is association between growth rates and GDP because it's not just the people, it's also the government. What happens when you get a government in poverty? What have they got to sell? They sell their natural forests and they sell their fish. You know, so it's not just the village people, the government as well. There was one prime minister who was ousted simply because he tried to change a logging policy. He came in, he said, let's stop logging, and six months he was out of office. You know, so it does happen there. Okay, this is my last slide. I call it the elephant, the egg, and the award. The elephant is the elephant on the table. We all know it's there, but nobody's talking about it. I'm struggling even to convince other non-government organisations that they should be doing something about poverty, um, population. They keep saying, oh, it's a health issue. We don't have to worry about that. Pacific people say, oh, it's been solved. We don't need to worry. It's still there. It's a problem. In Timor-Leste, you've got 7.8 people per person, per woman, and Australian government is not giving anything to family planning in Timor-Leste. They're funding plastic surgeons up there. You know, the highest fertility rate in our region, the second highest in the world, and AusAid, I think apart from 100,000 tamari stoves, is not doing anything. The elephant's on the table. The chicken and the egg, it's about the education. You've got to have the, the, the family planning there before women can get educated. You've got to have the family planning there before women can go out and work and get wealth. They say, oh, no, don't worry, Maggie. When people are wealthy, they'll start using family planning. Well, you need family planning in order to get wealthy. So there's this chicken and egg. And my last one is the award for family planning. Luckily, you're all a room full of grey-haired people. So when I'm talking about the 60s and 70s, you remember what it was like. You know, your, your terror was that you would get pregnant if you were a girl. And if you were a boy, you were terrified that that girl would get pregnant because you'd be forced to marry her. We didn't have access to family planning. We went to South Australia for abortions. We got kicked out of school. We had this stolen generation of adopted kids who were you know, just thrown away and adopted out, never to be seen again, because we didn't have family planning. And look at what our lives have become because of family planning. You know, we should be 
yelling from the roof. You know, what a fantastic thing. Would feminism have occurred if we didn't have the contraceptive pill around? I don't think so. You know, would we have parliamentarians, as many as 30%, if we didn't have contraception? It's this award that people don't even want to talk about, like what a fantastic thing it is and how it has changed our lives and especially changed women's lives. And out there in the Pacific, it's still happening like it did in the 60s. In Timor, if you're unmarried, you can't get the pill. You know, and most universal access means, of course, we'll give you family planning as long as you're not Catholic, as long as you're married, as, as long as your husband signs the consent form and please only come once a day or once a week, then we'll give you family planning. You know, there are still huge barriers. There's still a lot for us to do. And I think that's my last slide. Thank you. I was listening uh, just before José Ramos Horta was shot. He said on radio there was no need for family planning in Timor-Leste because once women were educated and once they had an income, they would adopt family planning themselves. Understanding how important the church is, that is nevertheless a truly absurd, a truly absurd statement. So what you said rang very true with me. I can remember I was listening in the car and I was so cross I had to stop. I thought, my God, I'm going to kill myself or him. Questions, questions for Maggie? It was fascinating talk. I'm amazed how you survive and what impact you are having in that country. Thank you. How, how did I survive? I bit my tongue so much at the Catholic mission. Um, before we went there, we, my husband actually went to Catholic church two or three times a week. I, I went to Catholic church every week. After, their, after Choisel, we have never been back to a Catholic church. I'm sorry. I was just so disappointed. In, in, this, in this ignorance about what was taking place, what we could see quite visibly, you know, and in one area, that these people should have all had the same lifestyle. Um, I'm still cross about it 15 years later, and I'm still talking. Um, Guy Vickerman, that was a spectacular show. Thank you. Um, could you bring it back tomorrow when we have the religious representative speaking <laughs> to us? The, the, sooner, the sooner that presentation is in all of our theological and economic colleges in the country, the better. Yes, uh, thank you, Maggie. Uh, <clears throat> this is really a question I wanted to ask uh, Bob McMullen, but uh, as you've been generally in the, in the area, it um, is perhaps one that you might care to answer and we might get a more thoroughgoing reply. But uh, we often describe um, East Timor, Papua New Guinea, the Solomons, uh, as the arc of instability. Uh, we have very large numbers of um, unemployed, um, uneducated youth, mainly male youth. Substantially, I suspect, the cause of that arc of instability. Australia is spending very large amounts of money on military uh, intervention in those countries in an attempt to stabilise them. I just wonder whether you'd care to comment on whether we wouldn't be better off in the longer term attempting to um, spend that money on things like education of women and family planning and all the other things that you've been talking about, that in the longer term we might do more to reduce that arc of instability than by sending uh, soldiers and so on at the present time. And of course a, a corollary of that is if um, we are seen to be interfering, quote unquote, with the fertility rates in those countries so as to bring their populations more under control. I wonder if you'd care to comment then on whether Australia doesn't have a responsibility to control its population as a good example 
um, because we can't go out telling other people they should control their populations while we're uh, living unsustainably and, and seeking to increase our own population. Okay, um, I, I think Peter Costello's got a lot to answer for, for his third child that he wanted us all to have. Yes, you're right, we have to look into our own backyards. Um, the arc of instability, if you look into your blue packs, you've got a little sheet with all the MDGs on it, and it talks about the, the relationship between strife and conflict and total fertility rates. And it, and it quotes Northern Uganda, um, Independent Republic of Congo, I think Sierra Leone, Liberia, as having high total fertility rates and therefore conflict. In our, in our region, you might not be surprised to know that Solomon Islands has the highest growth rate in the Pacific they have conflict. Bougainville has a 1% contraceptive prevalence rate. It has the lowest use of contraceptives in all of Papua New Guinea. And where is the conflict in Papua New Guinea? It's in Bougainville. And our third one up there is Timor. And as you know, it's the second highest total fertility rate in the world. And it's only 0.1 of a less, you know, than the highest. Conflict and total high total fertility rates go hand in hand. We should have been doing something years and years ago about this. I don't think we need to do anything coercive with these governments. Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea and Timor-Leste have all put population into their health strategic plans. But somehow it dips out between the health strategic plan and then the Australian government country strategy. I, I call the last 11 years the dark ages since Haradine came in. So I'm hoping that out of these dark ages there'll be a bit of a light and the country strategies that Australia develops will actually reflect what these countries are asking for. They are asking for family planning. Australia has not given any family planning opportunities to the family planning organisations for eight years. We are struggling to survive and provide any services because AusAid does not open up the windows for us. But luckily Bob was here and I've just talked to Duncan Kerr this morning and I think people are listening. Just partly answered the question that I had, but taking your earlier question on the OSAID funding and where has it really gone? Has it gone to AIDS and what are they calling reproductive health? Um, I'd like to ask you to, to say more about what you've seen over previous decades in Australia's responsibility in the rest of the world and what OSAID has done with funding. I should explain that I represent an organisation that raises funds so that there can be an overseas, a family planning component overseas aid, because without that we won't get anywhere. And I'd appreciate your sort of giving us a, a broad picture. I, I should have said earlier the funding I was talking about was actually ANCP funding. It's a very small amount of funding that's given out to non-government organisations. And in it, it said six million. I only know of 200,000 that went to family planning. There is a way to disaggregate it, and we've been badgering AusAid on this for a while, but I think now it will change. What I've seen over the last 20 years is that AusAid gives more and more money to Australian managing contractors. These are the large organisations, packers' organisations. They can make profits. The Australian government, um, non-government organisations get 4% of the aid money. Now, non-government organisations give very good funding. They're, they're charities, they're churches, they work for low amounts of money, they give fantastic services, they work at grassroots, but we have been marginalised more and more and more, and Australian government Australian non-government organisations are losing funding, they're closing up shop, they're closing their doors. This doesn't happen in other countries. Like, if you go to Canada, about 60% of aid money is distributed through the NGOs. Australia is 4%. And then the... The large managing contractors where I've seen overseas and you have a health sector group going into the Ministry of Health, they all sit in one room, all the white consultants and they drive big cars and they don't relate to the local staff so they don't know what's happening. 
whereas NGOs can relate to the local staff and they can make big changes, major changes for a very small amount of money. You know, when we send our young men overseas and we're paying them, you know, a quarter of a million dollars to put one person over in Solomon Islands, you can see why the Solomon Islanders aren't going to become good friends with them. We need to change our aid policy. Maggie, this question of, of the Catholic Church, um, having been to the Philippines with you, where I saw that, we've heard about East Timor, you've told us about the Solomon Islands. What can be done? How do, how do we, we work around the Catholic Church? <laughs> Marry the priests off, you know. <laughs> Once the priests can become married, they're going to understand completely what family planning is all about. <laughs> no, really... Look, if you look at Italy, it, it's a real shame, the Catholic Church's policy, and that it hasn't changed. I have a lot of success talking about strengthening families, spacing children, you know, getting Catholic families to try and space their children out three years apart. This reduces infant mortality, you know. We try and get them to reduce. The policy just has to change. And, and I think Catholics are changing, as they did in Australia. I mean, how many Catholic women in this audience take the pill? <laughs> Eventually, women will vote with their feet. And eventually, as you see in the Philippines now, they're coming down to four and five child families. They're not having seven and eight. And a lot of that to do is with family planning. I guess it's partly um, to do with the last question, but have you given any thought to why, you know, a country like Italy, which is predominantly Catholic and has the Pope sitting right there, has, a, I think, the lowest birth rate in Europe? And there are many other Catholic countries with low birth rates. And um, I mean, it's really going back about three generations before you did have the big Catholic mm. families in Australia. Have you thought about why it is such a problem um, in the developing countries, whereas in the developed world, Catholic families have, you know, just automatically shrunk in the last sort of 30 years? I, I think it comes down to access. Where you've got universal access, you know, that's fine. The women will just go and get that family planning anyway. But the trouble is that up in Papua New Guinea, the Catholic health services actually take the contraceptives out of the health boxes. They take the condoms out of the health boxes. So the contraceptives don't even get to the clinics. So what can a woman do? It, it's very, very difficult. Um, Senator Kerry Nettle. Um, I wanted to ask you about the interactions of that your program had with the Philippine government and what was their response to your program? Were you able to work constructively with them and perhaps how that changed over time? And the other question that I want to ask was about your interactions with um, both groups um, in the Philippines who were working on family planning and also on the coastal resource management. Were you able to have an interaction with both those types of groups? Clearly you combined the two, but were you able to find ways to engage with both those two groups within the community? Thank you for the question. Initially, because PATH Foundation is a health organisation, we had some initial... Um, uh, there were reservations coming from the from the conservation groups that we are going to be, um, should I say, um, doing something that's not traditional. And it's a non-traditional activity. This is, we believe, a pioneering initiative that tried to show that integration works. And, uh, and we had that. So we actually had to do research. And, and the operations research component is actually one of the reasons why um, we had to come up with this to be able to um, to address issues of 
of uh, scientists, particularly with the conservationists, who would think that you will model the interventions if you do more than one intervention. So that was, um, that was uh, um, the action that the project did, is to do an operations research. And we're glad to say that in, while we were doing this in the process, we worked with the um, academe of the, of the conservationists, uh, marine conservation programs, and we worked closely with the academe that relates to the to population and both were learning in the process so they were actually um, they actually um, uh, worked with us very closely and and also helped us come through to come up with integrate integrated analysis because it was also a challenge for them to do an integrated analysis of both household and um, and uh, marine marine indicators or coastal indicators, um, we did work with um, with the national agencies. We did work with the local governments, and uh, the um, anti-poverty commission was a framework that we saw as an opportunity to be able to put in um, the the integrated framework. We work with the Department of Interior and local government, which works directly with the local executives. In the Philippines, we don't have a national population policy. Um, the Department of Environment um, works strictly on the on the environment, although they have suggested that. But we have also a lot of political. Uh, Maneuvers and and there's a lot of issues. Uh, our DE and our secretary right now is a pro-life uh, advocate. Um, so those are issues. But we work in every opportunity that we can. We work at the national, not maybe not directly with with the the Department of Environment, but we work with some progressive personnel also in the same line agencies. And we do have them. And uh, that's I guess the the beauty of the work in the Philippines because we also work with the local governments who most of them see the issue of poverty, the issue of, of all of this food security uh, that uh, are directly affected by you no know, access to family planning and having bigger families and everything. This morning, Bog McMullen foreshadowed um, a, perhaps a changed emphasis in government policy and that they would deal less at national levels and more at either state or local government levels, which is something, of course, your project has done. And I wondered if you have any view about the, it being easier. Okay, it's politically easier, but in what ways is it more effective? We have over 1,500 local governments so you can imagine that we have to work with 1,500 local government units and, and it needs a lot of, of time and effort and, and everything that comes with it compared to working with one local government. I think that's, the, that's, uh, that's how we see it. We, we have little success, but we need these successes from these local governments who have supported our programs and that they believe in integrated programs to be able to talk to their peers and that is the direction that we are taking so we call it alternative advocacy project we know um, that we couldn't work at this time uh, with 
how much you wanted to be with the national government, but we're finding ways because the problem is growing and we couldn't wait. So we have to work with the champions that we have, and that's why we have uh, come up with champions coming from the communities. These are community volunteers. These can be uh, peer educators, and this can be small entrepreneurs, or this can be the local executives who are the, who are the kings in their communities. My name is Ian Clark. Uh, since the cornerstone of this is marine conservation, I'd like to ask in terms of your integration and cooperation with your national government, does your national government have a, an economic exclusion zone that it polices? for keeping Chinese and Taiwanese specifically, they're very mobile, uh, fishing boats out of your area, which would pull the rug under what you're doing. Is it policed that outsiders can't come in and spoil everything? I don't think I'm, in, I'm the proper person to ask. No, but is it or is it not? It ought to be your feeling for it, because if but it's not policed, you're wasting your time. Yes, there are. We we see in the news a lot of uh, of apprehensions of uh, um, of some who are fishing in in the waters of the Philippines. But to that extent, uh, we also have a lot of of frustrations because um, because they are not uh, um, given the proper or the issue is not addressed that well as much as we wanted to be. I don't know if I was able to answer your question, but uh, maybe we can talk later if, if you want. Foreign sourced money regarding aquaculture, or if you wish, prawn farms. Have you had any problems with those foreign entrepreneurs on your coastal landscapes? Thank you. We had experience um, in the early years of the program. We had some uh, pearl farms or prawn farms. Luckily, in the areas where we worked, uh, we had an environmentalist uh, um, local government official who was able to study the effects of, of the prawns. Uh, but um, I guess people are now learning the, the, the ill effects of, of uh, prone farming. We have uh, activists also in the, in the NGO field who uh, continue to... Um, educate our local officials about it. But I don't think that it was easily um, terminated contracts who were doing prawn farms, particularly because these are big companies uh, and not, not locally based. 